Go ahead and turn to John chapter 1 if you haven't yet. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We'll go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we we are tired, we are lost, we are hungry, we are weak. And we come to you now knowing that your Spirit will fill us, that your Spirit will feed us, that your Spirit will nourish us through your Word, God. So we come to you through your Word and we ask that you would do all of these things, that we would see the beauty of your Son in a way that we have never beheld Him before, God. As our hearts and minds are distracted, God, we ask that you would quiet all of our hearts and minds to delight in you through your word. Amen. A man named Lou Wallace had an amazing, fascinating life. Very quickly, he rose through the ranks of the Union Army and became a a general for the Union Army, for the side that won, thanks be to God. And from there, he, well, he kind of had this little uh, falling out with General Grant. That didn't go very well. And so what do you do when you have a fallout with General Grant? Well, then you begin, you get exiled out to New Mexico. And he gets established as governor of New Mexico in this land that, is still wild and flourishing and full of outlaws. And this man who is a general of the Union Army is one who actually wrote the, the, uh, the orders for Billy the Kid to be arrested, which then led to the death of Billy the Kid. And then under the James Garfield administration, as if the Far West wasn't far enough, they which sent him off to the Far East, and he becomes the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, right as it's uh, starting to crumble at that point in time. It hasn't completely fallen off the map, as it did after World War I. And he becomes dear friends with the, the, one of the, the last sultan of the Ottoman Empire, Abdul Hamid II. And if that wasn't enough, a general in the Union Army... Just that enough is enough to to hang your hat on for life. Uh, but then he's a, a governor in New Mexico, tracks down Billy the Kid, one of the most uh, infamous outlaws of the Wild West, becomes a, a friend and ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. But he's sitting around at 71 years old, and war breaks out again with the Spanish-American War. And so what does he do? Well, he's an old general, so he gathers up as many men as he can, and he tries to bring this hodgepodge group of guys to go down south and go fight in the war. But the war office gets a hold, and hears about this, and they put an end to it, and they tell him, go back home. So he goes, okay, maybe I can go fight if I do it a little more discreetly. So then he, he goes into the local recruiting office and tries to enlist as a private at 71 years old. I won't be able to bend over at 71 years old. But you probably don't know him about all of these things, but you may have heard of him through his writings. He's the author of Ben-Hur, the most 
famous, perhaps, American novel ever written. It was at one point in time the best-selling novel, American novel. And Lew Wallace actually was not a Christian. He was an atheist when he started writing this story. And this story, Ben-Hur, is about, obviously, about Judah Ben-Hur. And it's this transformation that happens in this character's life as he encounters Christ towards the end of the book. And his life, he himself, is transformed. Well, what happens is that Lou Wallace, who is an atheist, when he starts reading this book, starts doing his research through the Gospels and then writing them in his own, in his own novel, he himself actually becomes a Christian by in part, quite a bit, through his own writings of Christ. He encounters Christ and he can't help it. He is transformed. His heart is changed. And so, as you may all know, we're in the midst of this uh, push to raise money for a building. And we're going to have this six-week series about uh, being rooted and rooted in the community and rooted in our faith and everything like that. But we're going to talk about raising money um, Redemption style. We're actually, we're just not even going to talk about the building here this first week. We're not going to talk about money. We're just going to look at Christ and hope that He will transform our hearts as He has done for so many other people. So as we look at this, as we look at the text here in John 1, what are we going to see? Well, the first thing we're going to see is that Christ is the what is he? he? Well, he's the light. He is the true light. We're going to talk about that. That's actually going to be the bulk of the sermon are those verses 9 through 13. And then in chapter verse 14, we're going to be looking at Christ, who is the fullness of God, the fullness of deity, has now come in the flesh. And then finally, Lord willing, if we have enough time, we're going to be looking at Christ, the fullness of God, who is full of grace and truth. So without waiting any longer, let's go back into these into the text here. We're going to read verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Here, the Gospel of John in these opening movements here, that gives us the perfect example about the richness of our Christian scriptures. We can spend a lifetime meditating on these verses, meditating on these chapters. And we'll just barely begin to scratch the depth of what's, of what's there before us. So one of the beautiful things that John is doing here is that he's kind of taken the creation account and he's layering on a new creation account. You see in Genesis it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John, in chapter 1, in verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. 
So we have this another little layering of the creation account. And then in Genesis 2, Moses writes, Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Well, in John chapter 1, verse 4, he said, In him was life. Talking about the Word, talking about Christ. In Him was life. And then Moses, in in Genesis, he writes, And God said, Let there be light. John picks up on this, and, and he writes, And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. And then you go down to, that was uh, verse 5, you go down to our verse, verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now when light comes into something, well just think about it. It's baseline, it's your our inherent understanding is that there's darkness that is there. But there's this true light. There is a a one singular true light. And there are multitudes to think about this. So there's a multitude of lights in this nighttime sky. And they're all clamoring for our attention, right? So we bring the kids out into the field behind my parents' house, bring them to the park or somewhere. And you begin to look at the north, at the sky, and you teach them the, the, the... Find the Polaris. Find the North Star. It might, from our vantage point, it might not be the brightest. But every other light, every other constellation, they're going to be moving up this way and coming down or coming up over here and then down over there. But there is one particular light. When you're lost in the darkness, look north. Start up, down, right in the middle is the North Star. And then you will find your way home every time that is christ like in our lives we have a a myriad of lights that are fascinating and dancing around us and calling to us these false lights that call you and beckon you to come into the fields of seduction the light over there that is calling you to go into the the desert of bitterness where you can go and meander and refuse to have anything quench your thirst. Or light over there that seems so high, these mountains of envy. And then you go climb them, and you go climb them, and you reach the mountaintop, and then you look around and you realize, ah, there's another peak that's higher than the one I'm on. Another light calling you over there to the rushing waters of self-gratification. And you can go down there and you can drink of it and it tastes good. But it's only a matter of time until you yourself are swept away in it. Or the light over there calling you to self-illumination. To give you an identity where you can say who you are. Brothers and sisters, John is very clear. There is one true light. Beware lest you give up this substance to grasp at its shadows. There's only one true light. And this light can pierce into the darkness. And it can even pierce into the darkness of our souls. And this is the very light that came into the world. This light that is the only true light. The true life of men. Sounds wonderful. 
that comes into the world. So we can anticipate as we are in darkness, as we are dead, that the world would welcome this light like like a a man who's dying and seeing a, a paramedic come. Well, let's go to the verses here. Let's go back to the text. Verse 10. He was in the world. Okay. This is going to be great. And the world was made through him. Oh, even better. Yet the world did not know him. He came into his, he came to his own people in verse 11. And his own people did not receive him. Unfortunately, the world is made of people just like me and you. The creation, they didn't recognize their creator even when he was in their midst. Even when we see the hand of God working in our lives, changing our hearts, we still refuse him still. So easily, so easily. But it's not only just the world in general, but it's his people, his specific people. They reject him as well. He is the long-awaited Messiah. The one who they, they told their children about again and again and again. No, don't lose hope. We have been promised there is one who is going to come. The seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Don't lose hope. It's the fabric of of the Hebraic, of the Jewish people. He is the one who led them as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night through the wilderness and into the promised land. This Messiah is the one who was foretold by Isaiah when he said, Behold, the virgin shall give birth. All of this is pointing towards Christ. And what did they do? They did not receive him. There are many who say they are Christ's own, just like they would have been the first century. There are many who say that they are Christ's own. And they place that laurel wreath on their own heads. But they won't part with their own sins. They refuse it. And in rejecting and and Rejecting Christ, they are rejecting this willingness to give up of their own sin. They would rather have their own sin. They would rather grope around in the darkness than walk in the light with Christ, abiding in their hearts. But it wasn't in vain. It wasn't all in vain. Yes, the world rejected him. Okay. Yes, even his own people rejected him. Absolutely. But go to verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but they were born and they were born of God. See, there are some who who didn't reject him. There are many, yeah, nearly everyone was rejecting him when he was crucifying. The crowds are calling out for his crucifixion. The crowds are the one out there mocking him. But there are a select few, a remnant, you could say, of those who are believing in him and trusting in him. So remember that the light has come to everyone. And remember, there's only one under one name under which every man, every woman must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. 
So then it's only natural. As you look in verse 12, you see that all, everyone who believes, everyone, from the time of Adam and Eve until the time when Christ comes again, everyone who believes in Him shall be given the right to become children of God. Not one will slip away, my friend. And there's only one way that you can remain in this enduring arms of God, this loving God. Well, how does it not happen? Well, okay, the John gives us that. It's not by the blood. As though being a descendant of Abraham or being Jewish was, was enough to make you a child of God. And growing up, admittedly, this was my mortal sin. I'm not Jewish, right? But this was my mortal sin. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? I wouldn't look to... Christ, I wouldn't look to myself. I would look to my parents. How do I know I'm a Christian? Well, my parents baptized me. That's how I know I'm a Christian. That's good enough. Children sitting here, listen to me now. The faith of your parents is not enough to save you. Watching your parents read the Bible is not enough to save you and redeem you. Watching your parents pray is not enough to save you and redeem you. You, you must be born again. Just as your parents were born again. Your faith must be your own. Do not lean on them. You must have a faith that will endure, and it will only endure if it is built upon Christ. Because your parents will come and your parents will go. And your parents will not be there when you are facing God. Have this faith that is not of your parents, but have this faith that is of your own. Okay, so it doesn't happen by the blood, nor does it happen by the uh, will of the flesh, nor the will of the man. And so you ask yourself, why are you a Christian? Why are you a child of God? Have you talk about anything that you've done? This is what John is saying. If you talk about anything that you've done outside of the sin that makes it necessary, if you talk about anything that you've done in describing why you're a Christian, I'm sorry, you, you do not understand the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. That we can't do it, and we don't do it, but Christ has done it, and He can do it, and He will do it for us all. So think about it with your, with your children and your family. Why do we, why are these children in our family? Is it anything they've done? No. It's by, it was nothing they could do. It's not their own cunning that we have our own children. It was not of their own strength. It was not of their own obedience or their right standing or anything like that. No. It was something entirely outside of them that made them a child and gave them this identity. And the same thing. Is entirely of God. There's nothing that we can do to work ourselves into being a child of God. So then how does it happen? How do we see the light and not hate it? How do we not be in the world who rejected Christ? How do we not be of his own people who even they did not receive him? Again, there's only one answer and that is God. The work of God, but of God in the end of verse 13. See, God is a consuming 
fire that is jealous and zealous for his own glory. And in this state, even we cannot approach him unless he changes our hearts and begins to draw us to him. I mean, we just sang it, didn't we? Jesus said that if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross. He will come to me. And our hearts, we hear this and we rejoice in it, but then admittedly, uh, we don't like it a whole lot because we go, well, certainly I must have something to do in this. How am I going to be fulfilled? If this is entirely of God, how can I be fulfilled? And I would contend to you that this God's sovereign act in calling His people to Himself and changing their hearts so that they might worship Him now and throughout all of eternity, which is why we love Sunday mornings. This is the only way, your, the core questions of your heart, that they are going to be ever answered. So just think about identity, for instance. This is one of the main questions that our society is trying to answer. They're wrestling with identity. Who am I? And in culture, all they can give us is something that we claim for ourselves. So they look to things that they, they might do. So they look to their sexual preference. Who are you? Well, I'm, I'm a homosexual. And that is their core identity. Or I'm a transgender. And that becomes their core identity. And that is how they answer who they are. Or it's something even a little more subtle. Who are you? Well, I'm an accountant. I'm a nurse. I stay home. And this, my friend, is the best that culture can offer to us. When Even when it comes to answering the core questions of our, of our lives. And all they can offer you is what you yourself are able to obtain. This is why the, the, the world will have you latch onto it so tightly and, and never let go. But this is the problem is that I know I can't. And that's why I'm searching for something that is greater. So as we look, why is this beautiful that all of this is of God? Well, it answers these core questions and even this identity, this question of identity. Because we realize that our identity is nothing that we try to claim for ourselves or have for ourselves, but it is given to us and it is given to us by God. So then as humans made in the image of God, our true fulfillment comes when? When we have the right to become children of God. All of these core questions of who am I? Where do I belong? What do I do? They are all answered by the nature of God and God acting in His people to draw Him to Himself. And the gospel is the only way that you're ever going to have any fulfillment that is unshakable or an identity that can't be given or taken away. The very things our culture tries to promise, but they, they cannot deliver all right, so then how does this happen? There's, there's only one way that happens. Let's go to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son of from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And these, these abstract realities of God, they only make sense in one way. These abstract truths of God that we try to comprehend, they only make sense in one way, and that is when God comes into the flesh in Christ. Remember how John has been developing this, this theme of, this new theme of creation, and he starts with, with, well, with a new creation, and then a new light coming into the world, and now here we even have a new humanity that is coming, as John is showing how everything was turned upside down after the fall, now it's being turned right back side, right side up, I think is how you say it. And that is happening through Christ in His work in the world. So you see that man can become a son of God because the Son of God has become a man. They have it here. The Word of became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is where you just go all nerdy on it and love in the Greek and here in the text. And there's a host of words that John could have been using, right? right? When he says Christ dwells among us, here's a host of words that he could have been using. He could use meno, katoinko, of this dwelling. But no, he chooses the one particular word in verb form whose noun, stick with me here, whose noun is what would have been used in the Old Testament to represent the tabernacle. So John is actually saying, what he's saying is that Christ is tabernacling among us. That the presence of God is here among us. This very place where God's glory dwelled into this unapproachable glory outside of a sacrifice. That this is now residing in the flesh. And this whole story of God dwelling with man has taken this huge leap forward. Remember, in the garden they were separated from God. And then you can come to Him a little bit, a little bit in the tabernacle. But there has to be sacrifice and you have to be the high priest and you can only do it once a year. And then it takes a huge leap forward. The end game is that, behold, Revelation 21, that God will again dwell with man. And this is a huge leap forward in the story of God dwelling with man. Is that he now comes in the flesh. And all of this glory of God that was in the tabernacle is now there among us. Now we see here that in the presence of God is in the flesh and he himself became the sacrifice Remember, we could only approach God through sacrifice. Well, God comes into the flesh. He himself becomes a sacrifice so that we can dwell with him forever. And this, this glory, it cannot be denied, John says, for we have seen it. We have seen his glory. And it's the complete opposite of, I'll just say, of me. Like... If, if you want to think well of me, don't come close. <laughs> you come close, you see my sin, my anger, my frustration, my impatience. Uh, but if you want to see the glory of God, don't stay far away. Come close. And you will see even more and more the love of God, the patience of God, the overflowing goodness of God. 
So as you begin to think, oh, I want to keep people away, I want to keep people away because I don't want them to find out who I am, that's the complete opposite of what God is calling you to this morning. He's saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. For I have already gone to you, so come to me that you might behold all of my goodness and all of my glory. So we'll wrap it up here with Christ. This is why he alone is, is the hope of the nations. There's, there's only one who has all of the grace and all of the truth here. So we, well, we, all right, so we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then go to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law which came through Moses, grace and, the law which was given through Moses, grace and truth, however, has come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Brothers and sisters, it is only from the fullness of Christ, from this overflowing beauty and glory that we are able to receive this Christ, able to receive this, this grace. And notice that it's grace upon grace. It's not singular, like it's this little pill you can take and be done with. But it's this grace upon grace as though it's enduring, not only now, but throughout all of eternity. It's like this gentle flowing stream of God's love that will flow through His Son. So brothers and sisters, we just wrap it up. Come and encounter Christ and be transformed. Your desire is to stay away, to stay away, but Christ is pursuing you. His Spirit is calling after you. And when you encounter Him, you will be transformed. This is the Christ who is the true light of the world. This is the Christ who who came and dwelt, the fullness of God who dwelt among us. This is the Christ who came full of grace and full of truth, that we too might receive of His fullness and of His grace and of His truth. Encounter Him, not the God of your parents, not the God of your own creation, but come to Christ so that you might be transformed and to become a child of God. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... We are so blind. We might be able to physically see, but God, that we, our spiritual blindness is greater than we realize. We just ask as we come to you now and eat and drink of your Son and his goodness and of his glory through the Lord's Supper that we would encounter him in a fresh and a new way. And as we come to worship you again, God, reveal your Son to us. We think we can change ourselves, but it is you and you alone who can change our hearts from bitterness and anger and hatred and turn it to love and joy towards you. So God, we ask with eager expectation that this very moment you will be working in our lives. Amen. Amen.